0: Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 15. And we'll actually make a little bit of a a dip into chapter 16 today. And we're looking over the last several weeks and for several more at what is called the farewell discourse. And this is the last teaching that Jesus is going to give to his disciples before he is going to the cross. His journey to the cross is imminent. This is the day before, the evening of His arrest and the eventual crucifixion that will take place on the following day. And so as Jesus has inaugurated the Lord's Supper, as He has washed their feet, as He has taught them these recurring themes that we find in this farewell discourse over and over and over, we must remember that He is preparing them for both His departure and also for the apostolic ministry that they are soon going to undertake. So Jesus has drilled into their hearts and into their minds these recurring themes that we continue to see throughout this discourse that would tell us that to obey Him is to love Him. And if we say that we love Him, then we will obey Him. In the same way, the disciples and we today are to love one another in the same manner that Christ has loved us. We are going to bear fruit in the kingdom of God, that God is going to send to us the Holy Spirit, a helper who is going to assist us in our loving of Jesus and our obeying of Jesus and our love for one another, and He will empower us to be able to bear fruit. We must remember that we will never love or obey or bear fruit to the capacity that God desires apart from our being closely connected to the vine. He is our source. He is our strength. He is our life. It is Him and Him alone that empowers us to bear fruit in our lives. And the bearing of fruit is found in the chief characteristics of character, spiritual character that He will build in us and conduct, the spiritual conduct that will flow from our lives as God does His work in us. Now, He has told them all of these things, and as if, you, if you remember from last week, He introduced a new idea into their thinking, and that was this, is that they are going to be hated by the world. He loves them. The Father loves them. They are to love one another. They had to give their hearts and their lives and their minds to building the kingdom of God, the bearing of fruit. And oh, by the way, the world is going to hate you. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like to be hated. Even by people that I don't really care much about, I still don't want to be hated. For some people, it's a much more significant compulsion in their life. And I bet that you and I can find in periods of our lives where we would shrink back from the things that might elicit hatred from others expressed towards us. Well, what Jesus is telling these these disciples is that as they are going to undertake their apostolic ministry, the unbelieving world is not going to like it. They are going to be hated. This is what Jesus said, you will be hated, but you need to know they hated me first the reason the unbelieving world hates Christians is because they hate Christ. Now, I don't know that they always direct the line up to Him, but that's what Jesus told us. And that's what needs to shape our thinking in this regard, is that when someone hates you, rejects you, persecutes you because of your faith, it is Jesus that they really hate, and it is Him that they are persecuting. Now, this hatred is the result of difference. It is a difference that exists between believers and unbelievers. Jesus tells us that the world is going to love its own. The world is going to love those who think like them, believe like them, live like them, and act like them. And the way that this is characterized for us in the Word of God is through three primary characteristics. That is, the lust of the flesh. The world system, the non-believing world, is dominated by a lust of the flesh. A lust of the flesh is those things that I desire, those things that I can see, that I can taste, that I can touch, that I can feel. It gives birth to greater urge and greater desire. And it would be the mantra that if a little bit is good, then a lot must be better. So I'm going to pursue this lustful thing that I see with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind. There's also the lust of the eyes. And it is lusting after those things that I can visibly see with my own eyes. You might be sitting at a red light and you see one of the snazziest cars you've ever seen in your life. And you might say to yourself, "Ooh, I think I like one of those. I wonder what kind of car that is. And you might even turn out of your way to go find out exactly what kind of car that might be. Or for a lady, it might be some special shoe that they see clomping down the way and they go, oh, I kind of like that shoe. I wonder where they got that. I'm going to go see if I can find me one of those shoes. It is the desire for that thing that we can see. Then the other characteristic is the pride of life. The pride of life speaks of this very thing, is that I want to live a self-centered self-directed, self-focused life. It's me, myself, and I. And you're either with me or you're in the way. And I want to tell you this, that as a Christian, we ought to consider ourselves as being in the way of the world because we are different. Let me ask you this question. What fellowship does light have with darkness? What fellowship does righteousness have with unrighteousness? What fellowship does the atheistic, unreligious individual have with someone who says, I love Jesus with all of my life? What commonality exists between those two different people groups? Well, the answer is, not very much. And because of that, we are different and we oppose the system of the world. And because of that, The world hates us. I made this mention last week, and I want to do it again because it ought to be fresh in your mind. There's much of our country that is in upheaval because our president has the audacity to appoint a Supreme Court justice who is going to be conservative, and that conservative stance is opposed to the ways and the system of the world. Do you understand that's the way it works? In the same way, when there is a liberal-leaning president who appoints someone who is opposed to our beliefs and our ways of thinking and doing, we go, well, you know, I don't really like that very much, but hey, what am I going to do? Well, it seems like the other side is taking up arms. They've got sticks and they've got rocks and they're ready to go to war. They hate us because we're different. Persecution is coming... To the Christian, because we're different from them, they hate us because they hate Jesus first. Now Jesus drops this in, and He says, but not all are going to hate you. Some, very small number, a fraction of the totality of our population, is going to listen to the words that you teach, And the implication is that these are the individuals that God has prepared for salvation. They will, like the disciples, come to know Jesus and love Jesus and oppose the way of the world. Well, the world system is opposed to God. They hate Him, but they don't know Him. They think they know Him, but they really don't. You hear a lot of talk about spiritual things you hear a lot of talk about a, a divine being in the sky. It may be God. It may be a spirit. It may be a divine presence. It may be something. But you've got to know that kind of terminology doesn't mean they're talking about the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible has represented himself through his Son. And if you love Jesus, you will love the Son. And if you, excuse me, you'll love the Father, if you hate Jesus, then you are going to hate the Father. There are many, many people, I would say millions upon millions of people, who say they love God, but they have nothing to do with Jesus. Did you know that that's true? In the Muslim, in the Muslim faith? Allah. They love Allah, but they don't have a time of day for Jesus. Jesus. So they believe that they love God, they love Allah, and that's enough, but that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, if you love me, then you love the Father. And if you hate me, then you hate the Father as well. Hatred of Jesus is hatred of the Father. Why? Because Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus repeats this teaching over and over and over throughout the Gospel of John. And Jesus concludes this idea from our passage of last week. The hatred that the world has of him is unjust. I'll ask you this question What is it that Jesus did that has rightfully created this kind of animosity against him? Nothing. He was the most moral individual you'll ever hope to meet. He was the most righteous individual you would ever hope to meet. He was the most accurate and pure in his teaching than anyone you would ever hear. He was the most holy in every moment of his life as the sinless Lamb of God. All Jesus did was oppose the system and the ways of the world, and that has brought about hatred by the world. Let's look at our passage now as we continue in this idea of what we're looking at in this hatred, this animosity that the disciples are going to face. We'll look at verses 15-26, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 16, verse 4. We continue, "...when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning." These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes... you may may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Now, when we're looking at this very lengthy passage of the farewell discourse, it can be somewhat challenging to divide this up into what appears to be consistent or coherent sections of Scripture. There's a little bit of an overlap from the last section that we looked at and a bit of an introduction into the next section that we're going to look at. But this is... The the third mentioning of the Holy Spirit, and it's in the midst of this persecution that he's preparing the disciples for, and in the reading it might seem a little bit odd to us. In fact, there are textual critics who have spent their life evaluating the Scripture, and they say, "This this doesn't belong here. This is a later insertion. It breaks up the flow. But that's not really the case. It makes perfect sense. Jesus has told them that they are going to experience conflict with the world because of Him. He reminds them of the presence of the Holy Spirit who is going to be with them. And He's also introducing how they are to respond to the persecution because the Holy Spirit is going to be with them. So Jesus is going to go away, and the question comes up something like this. Well, if Jesus is gone, then why is there still going to be conflict between Him and the world? Well, Jesus explains that in the first two verses that we look at here in 26 and 27. So the first point in our outline is the work of the Spirit. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about Me. So Jesus is reminding them of what He said earlier in the discourse, that I am going to go away and the Father is going to send a Helper. Now the Helper, if you remember, is the Paraclete. The Helper or the Paraclete is the one who is called to the side of another. The paraclete, our helper, is going to come to our side as a comforter, as a counselor, as an exhorter, as an intercessor, as an encourager, as one who is going to strengthen us. And oh, by the way, he is going to give you the ability to endure the persecution that you are going to face because of me. So we have this helper, this helper that's going to come, this one who is called to the side of another, and he's coming to our side for the very purpose of helping us to love Jesus, to obey Jesus, to love one another, and to bear fruit in the kingdom, even in the face of tremendous opposition. Now we also know that this helper is going to come from the Father. Now this is the third time in the discourse that Jesus has said the Father would send the Helper. In John 14, 16, He said He's going to send another Helper. And that means of the same kind. It's not in addition to. It's of the same essence. And the implication is, is that just as I have been with you, in the fullness of deity, the Father is going to send another Helper, who is going to come in fullness of deity, and He he will be with you in the same way that I have been with you. It is the Father who gave the Son, and it is the Father who gives the Helper, the Holy Spirit, to come to our aid in the time of our need as we face persecution. Now, number three, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. It is the very same truth that Christ is. The Holy Spirit isn't going to come and teach or remind them of a different truth or of a similar truth. He's going to teach and remind them of the exact same truth. Jesus said that I am the way and the truth and the life. And the Spirit of truth is going to come in the same manner, of the same essence as Jesus Himself did. So the Helper is truth. He is the very presence of God and the Helper is going to communicate the truth of the Father and of Christ to the the disciples through um, through the execution of their apostolic ministry which has resulted in the writing of our Bible. And so the Holy Spirit speaks to us through the Word. It is the same truth that Christ Himself preached. Now the fourth thing that we see about the Holy Spirit's work here, it is the Spirit's witness. And this is where it gets to be a little bit different and becomes more specific to our passage. The Spirit's witness. The Spirit is coming and He will testify about Christ. In ways that we cannot see and in ways that we cannot fully understand, the Spirit is testifying about Jesus in the world. It's happening right now today. We don't see it. We aren't aware that it's happening. But let me give you an illustration of how this is so. Have you ever felt like you've been prompted by the Holy Spirit to do something? To go to someone? To call someone? And you have some concern about that? Maybe even some reluctance. Well, Jesus, I don't know what I'm going to say. and I don't know why you want me to do this, but pff, I guess I will. And you go and you have the conversation, and perhaps it's about spiritual matters, and maybe even about presenting the Gospel specifically, and the individual says to you, boy, I'm really glad you came, because I've been thinking about these things, but I didn't know who to talk to. I didn't know who to ask. Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me on a few occasions. And it's a reminder that God is at work and ways that we cannot see, in ways that we cannot understand. And so the Holy Spirit of God is out there in the world testifying about Jesus. Now, to be truthful, most are going to reject the testimony. Why? Because it will be in opposition to the ways of the world that they themselves are captured by. The ways that have captured the unbelieving world and resulted in disinterest in the person of Christ and in the work of Christ will lead to the rejection of Christ. And we'll talk more about that in the passage that we'll look at next week and following. But as Jesus said, not all are going to be in opposition. There There are these providential appointments that are out there because the Spirit is testifying about Jesus And that leads us to this next point, number five, and that is the believer's witness. The Spirit is out there testifying about Jesus in the world, and verse 27 says, And you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. Now there's a little bit of a specific application here to the disciples that isn't specific to us, but the principle still applies to us. So just as the Spirit testifies to the world about Jesus, believers are also. It is two sides of the same coin and it is the completion of the Spirit's witness in the world. God uses mankind to bear fruit in His kingdom. Now God doesn't need mankind to bear fruit in His kingdom, but God has chosen to use mankind to build fruit in His kingdom. Now what you and I ought to say is, wow, that's amazing. This sovereign God, who is omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent, can do whatever He wants apart from me, but He is allowing me to cooperate with Him to build fruit in His kingdom as a blessing and as a privilege in my life. That's how we ought to think of it. But oftentimes, when we read the things in Scripture that encourage or compel us to do, we kind of think, well, you know, I I really would prefer that to be another way. I'm so busy. I've got so many other things to do. I don't know everything that I ought to know what if I don't say the right words and what if they don't like me because of the things that I say what if they don't want to be my friend what if they slam the door on my face what if they don't invite me to the next party they throw well geez, I don't think I want to risk that so God in your omniscience and your omnipresence why don't you just take care of it on your own because it's a little bit too inconvenient for me well The witness of believers is the other side of the coin of the witness of the Spirit because God has designed for you and I as His children to participate in testifying about Jesus also. This is the mission of the church. It is the mandate given by Christ. What is it? Well, you should be able to quote it with me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And how is Jesus with us, even to the end of the age? In the person of the Holy Spirit. To go, to evangelize, and to disciple in the world that the Spirit it's testifying about Jesus. He's out there. He's testifying. Where are the believers who are completing the testimony of the Spirit? Every church and every Christian must wrestle with the reality of what this means for me individually and for our church corporately. You know, when you quote the mandate... Almost nobody is unaware of what that says. Almost nobody is really unaware of what that means. But where the line is drawn is in my individual participation and what the mandate requires. And so, you know, God, what I want to do is I want to delegate that responsibility to the missionaries and the evangelists and the pastors in the world, and I'll send them a few bucks and I'll participate in their newsletter, but that's their job. That's not my job. Well, you know, Satan, our enemy, is pretty clever in convincing the church that that is acceptable to the Father. Is it? Is that what Jesus said? Sit back and relax and let the professionals go do it on your behalf. All you need to do is give him a couple of bucks and your responsibility is satisfied. It's not what it says, does it? The mandate of the Christian, the mandate of the church is to testify about Christ because of who He is and because of what He's done. But I don't think too many of us are unaware that that just might bring some unwanted persecution or ridicule in my life, and I've got enough to deal with to have to add that to my mix. I don't want to be ridiculed. I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want to be ostracized. I don't want any of that stuff. Well, I'm sorry. It just doesn't work that way. We are expected to be testifiers of Jesus just as the Spirit is out there testifying in the world Now, where this is unique to the disciples and different for us is in this. The disciples had been with Jesus from the very beginning. They had a very unique privilege and a very unique responsibility through their witness, through the lives they lived, through the testimony they would give, through the teaching they would provide, through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, they would fill in the remainder of what was unrevealed by God, and that is the contents of the New Testament. So the disciples were going to go out and they were going to preach and teach in the name of Jesus and they were going to perform many miracles and signs and wonders and the lost world is going to say, wow, I can't deny that. They must be speaking the truth. Now you and I have not been with Jesus from the very beginning, have we? We've never seen Him. We've never been in His presence physically. We've never heard His voice. We never saw His hands do the miracles. But what we have is a complete revelation in our Bible that tells us all we need to know about who He is so that we, like the disciples, can give a proper and an accurate testimony of who Jesus is. While we are not eyewitnesses, of His life like the apostles were, we are called to point people to the truths about Him revealed in the Bible. I've heard this in some of the jobs that I've had outside of the church. And people talk about God, but they don't talk about Jesus. They talk about spiritual things, but they don't talk about Jesus. And once you introduce Jesus into the conversation, you can see the wall go up, You can see the look change on someone's face. And on a rare occasion, you see someone say, I'm so glad that you talked to me about this because I didn't know. I'm reminded of this, and I I don't remember all the details of her life. Helen Keller, born blind, born deaf, finally learned how to communicate. And in that process, the individual who was brought into her life to teach her how to communicate, communicate was a believer and she shared Christ with Helen Keller who became a believer and said I always believed in God I just didn't know his name people need to know the name of Jesus so the first thing that we are reminded of here is the work of the Holy Spirit and again this is a bit of an introduction and a more lengthy section in the next passage we'll look at It's the work of the Holy Spirit in the face of persecution. So Roman numeral 2, and our outline is this. We are to remain faithful. The work of the Spirit is to help us to remain faithful. So we look at verse 1. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. So the first thing that we need to do in order to remain faithful is we need to be prepared the greatest danger the disciples faced was not being killed, but it was falling away from the faith. All that Jesus has told them, not only in this farewell discourse, and not just specifically in the reality of persecution that's going to come come upon them, but in the entirety of His teaching ministry, all that He has told them is preparing them and keeping them from falling away. It is protect them And it is to prepare them for the challenges that they are going to face. That word stumble comes from the Greek word scandalizo, and it's the word in the English that we get for scandal or scandalize. That's not a word you want to be associated with in your life. Would you hear about Brother Bob? Not Bob here. Boy, there was a real scandal that came into Bob's life. Oh, really? What was it? I want to know all about that. Well, it gives this idea that something has happened, that there is a falling away. And in the context of what Jesus is talking about, to stumble is to give up one's faith. Literally, in the Greek, the word means bait stick in a trap. Do you know what a bait stick in a trap is? You get a big rock or a big basket or a big cage. And you put some kind of a tasty treat on a stick and some unsuspecting animal will fall in there and what happens? ka That's the idea behind the word stumble. So in context of what Jesus is talking about, the stumble would be to fall away from the faith into apostasy. Apostasy is a willful departure from a professed faith in God and His truth revealed in Scripture. Let me repeat that. It is a willful departure from a professed faith in God and His truth revealed in Scripture. I want to tell you, if you ever hear anybody say, well, you know, I believe in God. I believe He's out there. But you know the Bible, it's kind of an antiquated language and it was written so long ago, and I'm really not sure how much of it I can believe in, and how much of it it is true, <clears throat> they don't believe in God. It is an apostate faith. I would ask you this, what has God revealed to us about Himself in Scripture? What is the epitome of God's revelation about Himself in Scripture? I didn't cite the verse here, But Paul, talking to the church in Colossae, says he is the exact representation, the exact image of the Father God. If you want to know who God is, you start by looking at Jesus. So the revealed truth in Scripture about God is going to flow through Jesus. And so to fall away from your faith means that you deny the revelation of, of God in Scripture, and that begins and ends with His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. So to fall away from the faith, to stumble, means that we fall into apostasy. Now Jesus says this because He knows, He knows how easy it can be to shrink back, to walk away, because he's just told them, you are going to be hated by the world. Hey, they knew hatred. They knew what it was like to be hated by the world. If you really want to know what it's like to be hated by the world, and because you're a Christian, go to one of these third world countries. Go to one of these countries where it's illegal. To be a Christian. It's illegal to possess a Bible. It's illegal to gather together for prayer or for a church meeting. They know what it means to be hated because of their association with Christ. Jesus knows of the risk of falling away because people are trapped in this world system. It's a world we're very familiar with. It's a world that we can get very comfortable with. It's a world that makes us feel kind of like we belong, because after all, we are a huge minority. Hatred, because we are different and not of this world, has caused falsely professing believers to walk away from their professed faith and to deny the revealed truth of Scripture in God's Word. Now, the disciples are really going to be put to the test. In just about 12 hours, Jesus will be very close to being on the cross. And in three days, He will be resurrected. He will make sporadic appearances over 40 days. And in that time frame, I can assure you the disciples are asking themselves, what do we get ourselves into? What is going to happen? How is this all going to work out in the end? A lot of unanswered questions. And in 40 days, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is going to come as the Father pours out the Spirit upon all believers. And He will empower them to live their lives in an unbelieving world which is going to be very hostile towards them. So they need to be prepared. Secondly, they need to be strong. Verse 2a they will make you outcasts from the synagogue. Now remember, the first disciples are all from the Jewish faith. And so this is what Jesus is telling them, is that you are going to be outcast from the synagogue. And what it does is it identifies the origin of the first source of persecution that they are going to face, and it's going to come from their fellow Jews. Jews are going to be staunchly opposed to these disciples and the execution of their ministry. And there's two reasons for this. One is that Christianity has come out of Judaism and this belief in Christ as the Messiah is going to turn Judaism upside down because they don't believe He's the Messiah. So they are really rocking the boat. They are coming up against the religious leadership and the religious status quo in a very significant way, just the way that Jesus did. And so there is this threat of excommunication. Now, excommunication is much different than just getting kicked out of a church. I'll give you an example. So our beloved Bob and Janet, since Bob and Janet are together and I've just picked on Bob, Bob and Janet could do something that would bring about a real negative witness upon the cause of Christ. And so we would talk with Bob and Janet and they say, nope, not going to change it, not going to confess it, not going to repent of it. We're going to do whatever it is we want to do. We said, well, we're going to have to ask you to find someplace else to worship. Okay, great, we'll go somewhere else. And they can go anywhere else they want. They can live their life however they please. Well, that would what it would mean. That's what it would mean to be excommunicated from a church. But to be excommunicated excommunicated from the synagogue means that they would be cut off from all religious and social and economic aspects of Jewish society. Now, a Jew who got excommunicated couldn't hop in his car and just drive down the road to the next synagogue. It didn't work that way. When you got excommunicated from the synagogue, you were done. You had no place to worship. You lost all of your friends. You probably lost your job. And if you had your own business, no other Jew would dare to visit your market because you had been excommunicated from the synagogue. They would be called traitors. They would be looked down upon. And they would be worse than the hated Gentiles. So for many, this threat of excommunication created enough concern that they could never envision doing anything that might bring about Excommunication. Well, if that wasn't enough, in order for them to be prepared and to be strong in resisting the stumbling, is there's there's also this threat of death. Well you might say, well, you know, it's okay to get kicked out of the synagogue, but this next one kind of draws a line for everybody. Second part of verse two but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you. Now that hour is coming and the Gospel of John always speaks forward about the hour of Christ and His crucifixion, His resurrection, His ascension, His exaltation. What it means here is that there is an hour of inevitability when they, the world that hates you, is going to come for you and they are going to kill you. Do you remember how many of the disciples died a martyr's death? All but one. Do you remember the number of Christians that have been martyred throughout the ages? It's estimated to be in excess of 70 million. And two-thirds of those have taken place since 1990. That's the estimates based upon all the data that can be gathered. So why would there be this threat of death? Why would people want to kill Christians, well, verse 2c, they think he is offering service to God. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? What it implies here is that these who are going to seek to kill them are going to offer religious service or religious worship to God by killing Christians. Have you ever heard the term jihad? Jihad. Do you know what jihad is? Jihad is holy war. Militant Islam is violently opposed to Christianity, and so they undertake a life of holy war thinking that they offer a service to God. Now, I didn't find any statistics that would prove this, but I would imagine that a great number of the persecutions, excuse me, of the martyrs, the martyred deaths of Christians came at the hands of other quote-unquote religious people. Have you ever heard about the Dark Ages? Have you ever heard about the Crusades? The Crusades was the march of Christians under a pagan king, pope, who set out to kill all all the Islamic people. So people who think they're offering a religious service or a worship of God are going to kill Christians. Paul describes his own violent position on Christianity. Remember, remembering who Paul is. Uh, Acts 22.4 I persecuted this way, which is what the church was called in the early days, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. He would go on and say, in Acts 26 verses 9-11, So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I look up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote saying yes. And as I punished them, often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. That is a man who is on the hunt for Christians thinking that he is offering a religious service to God. And there are many, many, many people out there who will kill Christians for the very same thing. But this is specifically what the apostles are looking at because... The first origin of the persecution is going to be going to be at the hands of their Jewish brethren. Well, how can it be that religious, supposedly God-fearing people can persecute and kill Christians? Well, Jesus tells that tells us that also. I forgot to put that in there. So where do we go? I'm sorry. Uh, verse three, these things they will do because they have not known the Father. Or me so they are going to kill Christians, thinking that they're offering service to God, but Jesus says they do these things because they have not known the Father or me. Remember, if you hate Jesus and you hate the Father, and if you love Jesus and you love the Father, so those that are hating Christians hate the Father. they think they know God, but they really don't. So unbelievers and religious people can persecute Christians, but Christians can also be persecuted. Within their own church. Let me say that again. Christians can be persecuted within their own church. You think that's true? When you have the highly committed versus the lightly committed, one who has made a significant commitment to be different from the world. And a Christian who really wants to embrace as much of the world as he can, there's a conflict there. And there could be a persecution that takes place within the church. 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I think that's the reason why the mandate to go make disciples and baptize is delegated off Because we don't want to be persecuted. Well, the third thing that we need to do is we need to be aware. Verse 4a, But these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, knowing that they are going to come, you may remember that I told you of them. So there is a certainty to the opposition that Christians are going to face because of Christ. And most specifically, the disciples who are hearing this teaching are going to experience it firsthand very, very soon. Now, to us it might appear that the persecutors have the upper hand because we are so far outnumbered, but we must always remember that the Holy Spirit is with us. He indwells us. He will empower and equip us to stand strong in the face of opposition. Jesus never glossed over the truth, but it wasn't necessary for them to know these things until now Because his hour is at hand. His death is just around the corner. And with them being left in the capable hands of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is now telling them what they need to know. Verse 4 Be these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. When Jesus was present with them, he not only protected them from the persecution, but he himself took it on their behalf. Well, again, this is a pause in the farewell discourse that we're studying. But I want to ask you again about this persecution that we're looking at. Now, I know that none of us want persecution. Right? We don't want that. That's natural. But we are called, we are given an imperative mandate to testify about Christ. We do that through the character that Christ creates in us through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the conduct of the lives that we live, and through our mutual testifying about Christ. There's no way to be a significantly committed Christian and not experience a persecution. To live the life that Christ wants you to live might mean that some in your family won't want anything to do with you. It might mean that you might get bypassed for a promotion. It might mean that the civic organization you've been faithful to for 30 years won't allow you to be the president. It might mean that you're going to have to find a group of new friends. And we think about that naturally. We think about that through our own worldly perspective. And you say, you know, That's a pretty high price to pay. That seems a little bit severe. Well, when you think those thoughts, and when that is what dominates what we will and won't do, I want to encourage you to look upon the cross, to look upon the sacrifice that Christ made so that you and I could be His children, the children of God, and ask if that was too severe. You know, the Bible says in the same way we share in His sufferings, we share in His glory. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, I would acknowledge that if there's ever a subject that we don't want to hear, this would be it. We, um, We just don't like to be hated. We don't like to be disliked. We don't like to be excluded from the stuff that's out there. We want to fit in and we want to belong. I pray that you would help us to recognize how the system of the world has tainted our thinking, has driven our actions, And has watered down our commitment. Father, I pray that through the work of your spirit, that you would not only empower us to live the Christian life you've called us to do, but you will compel us to. No matter the consequence, no matter the price that we pay. Father, help us to love you first, knowing that we love You because You loved us. God, would You ever put the cross before us so that as Jesus was willing to pay the price, that we would consider the cost that He paid. May You find in us the commitment that You desire. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.